Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. Man, if you are joining us here on our campus in the building or you're just online with us, uh, not just online, you're joining us from online, uh, I just want to say welcome. Welcome to Sunridge. And if you're a guest here today, online or here in our building. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve the church as the lead pastor, and I would love to be the first person to welcome you to Sunridge. So welcome to Sunridge Community Church. Uh, when I, uh, before I get started here, I want to tell you something. We are losing one of our folks that have been so important to this church, and she sits right over here. Her name is Cassie, and now she's got to interpret nice things that I'm saying about her. Britt is really great. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Cassie drives all the way from Riverside. Cassie, is that right? And she's been one of our signers here for many, many years. And she's moving on to other things. And so we're just really going to miss you, Cassie. You've done such an amazing job. I know that people watch you instead of me because you're so good at what you're doing over there. So, yeah, thank you. Cassie and people like her have been so strategic uh, for us to uh, be able to uh, minister to the deaf community here in the Valley, and so we're really grateful for folks that have joined around that cause, and especially Cassie. Uh, I wanted to, like, when I was in my late 20s, I decided to leave full-time Christian ministry and pursue a career in the fire service. So I worked as a carpenter by day, and I was a student by night taking fire science classes at Santa Ana College. Go Santa Ana. And uh, the first class I had was an introduction to fire science. And it was held in this big auditorium. It's like, you know, theater seating. There were a couple of hundred of us in there. I was sitting about three quarters of the way back, a few seats in. And at the beginning of that class, this, our instructor, this crusty fireman from, older fireman from uh, Santa Ana Fire, had everybody stand up in the room. And so there's a couple of hundred people standing up uh, in this auditorium, and he starts to talk, he says, you know, if you're 18 or younger, you know, sit down. And he goes through all these ages, and lo and behold, at the ripe old age of 29, that I was, I was the last person standing in that class of a couple of hundred people. And he walked up the stairs to me, and he walked into my aisle, and before all of those other students and God, he said to me, you should think about doing something else. <laughs> because no one's going to hire you at 29. You're far too old to start a career in the fire service. And uh, needless to say, I was embarrassed. Um, I was asking myself, am I just kidding myself? Uh, I was disheartened. I was mad. 
And I was determined. And that began a two-year journey for me um, where I took night classes, um, three months of a fire academy at my own expense, um, Cindy and I saving money so that I, because I knew that I wouldn't be able to work. During that period, she picked up the load and was cleaning houses, and she was truly our only source of income for three months. And um, our kids suffered, you know, the loss of their dad basically for two years because I was working and going to school, and the whole time I'm just asking myself, am I wasting my time? And um, most of you may not know this, but I was successful and uh, getting a career in the fire service. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but I used to be a firefighter. <laughs> now, I want to tell you that not all of my life pursuits have been uh, as successful as that, and I have really, really skimmed over how difficult those years were for me and my family. But I have a question. The question for you is, have you ever set a goal or even felt that God was leading you to do something, but in that process, you experienced difficulties. You faced challenges. There were obstacles in the way. And when it happened, somewhere along the line, did those, did those challenges make you question whether you were really on the right track or not? Or did it also like erode your confidence in God? Were you, did you find yourself saying, you know, God, I feel like you led me to take this step. And yet, it doesn't feel like the, the pieces are coming together. And are you backing away from me, Lord? Now, sometimes it's not something, you know, like a career pursuit. It could be something much more fundamental in our lives, like you thought you were perfect for one another, so you got married. And uh, after a couple of years, marriage got hard and you found yourself asking questions. Or you um, started to finish a degree or some certification, and then something happens in your life, and now you're sidetracked from that. Some of you have become dads or moms, and you're like, I never realized being a parent was this hard. And you're thinking about getting rid of your children in the name of the Lord. <laughs> Or you're just trying to live like a Christian in 2022, right? Um, today, we're wrapping up this study that we've been in for 19 weeks, uh, the study of this book that follows the Gospels called The Acts, and it is the story of the first century church. And, and where we are in the story is that the Apostle Paul, who's kind of become the main character, so we've gotten kind of like the midpoint and on, in this book, uh, he felt that God was leading him to Rome, the most powerful city in, the, in that region of the world at the time. And he described this notion that he had as a vision from God. So he felt that God had told him to get to Rome. Now, we might use different words to describe that urge or that goal or this epiphany that we have, but like he feels like God has called him to do this. And he had planned several times to get there so that he could spread the gospel, so that he could do what God, what he felt God had called him to do. And, uh, but always, he was prevented. There was always something in the way from this thing that he had in his mind that he was supposed to do. Now, spoiler alert for what we're going to talk about today. He does, indeed, get to Rome, 
but it's under far different circumstances than he ever imagined. And the trip there, as we will see, was a real humdinger. So here's how we got here. We've been talking about this phase of Paul's life over the past couple of weeks. Paul is under arrest, and uh, he, started, he starts in Caesarea. He, um, he, he is going to trial for creating unrest in the city of Jerusalem. And it's that arrest that's leading him to Rome to stand in the highest court before Caesar. And as Mark noted, as he read this first launching passage uh, between Acts 27 and 28, those are the last two chapters of the book, we get an unusual amount of detail in this journey because Luke is the author of this book, and we can see times when he's not just getting the story from somewhere else, he's there. And Mark's called these, these are the we passages. You'll notice as you read through Acts that sometimes it just says we instead of telling the story. So Luke is, is on the ride with him. And Paul is one in a group of prisoners that are being transferred from Caesarea to Rome. And Luke describes here in what Mark just read the way prisoners were transported in the first century. There's a Roman commander and in this case, his name is Julius. And he and a regiment of soldiers are taking this group of prisoners. Paul isn't the only one. They're taking them to Rome. And there's no indication here that this Julius is a believer. But it's clear he has an affinity for Paul. Because once they arrive at their first stop in Sidon, he shows Paul a kindness by allowing him to stay with friends while they're in that port. And even he allows... Allowing Paul to get off of that ship is totally out of the norm and a violation even of his duties as a Roman commander. And uh, probably what has happened is he's gotten to know the Apostle Paul while he has been imprisoned in Caesarea for a couple of years. Now Luke says right away that winds are a problem and it's slowing their progress. And so they're getting a little off course, which is kind of a foreshadowing here, right? Luke is telling us something that's going to happen without telling us yet. And it's, it's impossible, they find, to maintain their course, but they find a place to harbor on the windward side of an island named Crete in a little community called Fair Havens. And the problem here is that they're working against the clock as they travel. Uh, verse 9, much time had been lost. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was the day after atonement. So they are sailing in the Mediterranean Sea sometime um, after the 1st of October. And anything after September is, is super dangerous to be sailing in the Mediterranean Sea because the weather conditions there get treacherous. And almost all shipping, almost all sea voyage stopped from November to March. Now, Paul isn't the ship's captain, but he is a seasoned traveler. He's got a lot of travel points in this region. So he warns them in verse 10. He says, men, I can see that our, our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. Now, why would they even risk this trip? Why would people send a ship not just with the Apostle Paul, but all, uh, all kinds of other goods during this time. Well, in spite of how dangerous it is, one of the things that Rome would do is they still need supplies coming into the city of Rome. And so they would sweeten the pot for these ships 
captains by paying them a lot more to make the journey, and sometimes they would even guarantee their ship if it was lost, or the cargo. They would still get paid. And this port that they're in, Fairhavens, even though it's named, you know, such a beautiful, peaceful name, it's not a good place to get stuck uh, during the winter months. So when the winds are calm, Luke tells us they decide to go a little more, uh, a little further up the coast of Crete, uh, and they plan to port in an area called Phoenix, not Arizona, no water there, um, for a few months. And unfortunately, as they set out for that little short journey, they don't have the advantage of the ABC News Channel 7 Mega Doppler, and they don't know that hurricane winds are coming, and they're blown miles off course and out to sea. And at that time, maritime uh, technology can't match the conditions that they're facing. And in verse 15, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so they gave way to it, and they were driven along. So they, they can't even steer the ship. So the ship is just like being tossed out at sea. <clears throat> now they get a little relief as they pass on the lee side of a little island, so they strap the ship with ropes to hold it together. And it's so bad. The storm is so bad that they throw their cargo overboard, which, remember, is the reason why they're making the trip in the first place. That's where the money is. And we don't know that they have any kind of guarantee, but that shows how desperate their conditions are. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in rough seas before, but I grew up in Miami, as I mentioned before. My, I, for my whole life, I can remember my dad having a boat, and we, I would go fishing with him and his buddies or spear fishing, or diving. And uh, some days it was pretty rough out there. And I get seasick just like that. And my dad would get frustrated with me because I'd want to go home. I'd be crying. I'm like in third or fourth grade. First of all, you know, my dad would tell me there's no room in the cooler so you can only take two Cokes. The reason why there is only room for two Cokes is the rest of it was full of Falstaff or PBR or something like that for him and his buddies. And uh, I would get sick and my dad would tell me, like, we're not going back home if you get sick. So if you want to go, you can go. I've been in rough seas. It's, it's dark and stormy. They can't, they can't even see, so they can't navigate by the stars. They're, they're exhausted. They're depleted by hunger. And Luke describes their state of mind in verse 20. He says, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, people in crisis uh, are often open to spiritual things. And Paul captures this moment. In verse 22, he says, Now I urge you to the souls on board, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And then he talks about his faith, the truth of God's word, and his personal confidence in what God has said to him. Verse 23, last night an angel of, the Lord, uh, the angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Paul, you are going to get, get to Rome, and the people on board this ship are going to make it along with you. And they are caught in this storm for being tossed who knows where for two long weeks. And in verse 27, uh, on the 14th night, Luke says, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea 
when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. So the Mediterranean Sea at its deepest spot is three miles deep. But they have a, they, they're starting to sense the waves are taking shape differently as they approach shallower waters. They're dropping a sounding line to check depths, and it's getting shallower and shallower. And they're probably hearing waves in the far-off distance, that, waves that are hitting shore that sound way different than waves at sea. But it's pitch black. And so, because they, feel, they think that they're getting closer to an island or land, they, they drop an anchor and they wait for the sun to come up. And it's then that Paul reassures everyone on board, all 276 of them, that they will be saved. Now, you wonder, where does Paul's authority come from? And why are people following his instructions? I don't really know. Because he's not the captain, right? He's just a crazy preacher that's on board. But I think what you start to see, if you read between the lines, is what an amazing man the Apostle Paul is, and that he was a man of faith and compassion. He was a great leader, but he was also a servant. And so something is giving him cred with these people to listen to him. And once again, he rallies them with encouragement. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. <clears throat> now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. So Paul says, we all need to eat something here. And it's almost like he's, he's serving communion, right? Doesn't it sound very much like he broke the bread and gave thanks? So this story kind of has themes of Jonah to it, except in this case, the prophet on board is a blessing to the crew, and they don't want to throw him overboard. When the sun comes up, they can see a sandy beach. So they decide to make a run for it. So they want to get in as far as they can, so they toss it everything out, food, everything. They want to light the ship to where it's going to make it as close to shore as possible. They cut the anchor loose, they hoist the sails, and they point the ship straight at the beach. And in verse 41, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground, and the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding surf. So they are in the wave zone. This is where the waves are breaking. This is where a sandbar builds up. That's what's causing the waves to break. I've been there surfing before. It's not a fun place to be. And that ship is just getting pounded. And so everyone is going to have to swim for it to survive. But in the first century, Roman soldiers could not allow the prisoners to escape their, their proximity to the soldiers. And so they're planning on murdering all the prisoners and then jumping in the water. But once again, Julius violates his own military standing operating procedures and spares them all because of Paul. And in verse 44, the rest were to get there on planks or otherwise pieces of the ship, and in this way, everyone reached land safely. Now, I've never been shipwrecked. I don't know about you. I have been stranded. 
I broke down on a freeway one time in a car, and, I've been, and I was stranded in the Houston airport for over 24 hours. So it's like the same thing, right? <laughs> and as I mentioned before, fishing with my dad, sometimes we would stay on these islands, just, just us. But like, uh, I've never been shipwrecked. So they don't even know where they are. Where they are is a little island called Malta, and it's only a day's voyage from Sicily. So they are so close, yet so far, but they're still alive. And they're going to be here, again delayed, for three months. Now Malta is inhabited by people who are friendly to the guests. So like what, what you wonder is like, this is probably a common occurrence. They're like, yep, we got another one out there. You know, they're not making it. And so they're welcoming to these refugees uh, from the Mediterranean Sea. And there Paul, uh, is, they decide to build a fire, and he gets bitten by a snake. Now, as I mentioned, I grew up in Florida, a state where it, anything that can sting or bite or kill you is there. And I've been bitten by snakes, actually, but never a poisonous one. By the way, did you know that the majority of snake bites that occur in America occur on males above the age of 30 in their upper extremities? So if you want to ponder something besides, you know, amazing points that I'm getting to at the end here, maybe wonder, like, why are young men being bitten by snakes that crawl on the ground and they're getting bit on their upper extremities? Just something to ponder. Some of you are Googling it right now. I've totally lost you. In chapter 28, verse 5, Paul shakes the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. And the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and uh, seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. And that just shows you how quick people's opinion can change of you, right? If you're ever down and out, let a snake bite you, it's worth the gamble, right? You're going to go upward with a bullet. During this stay there, Paul is not deterred. He shares a gospel with the inhabitants there, uh, and he cares for people, and he's healing the sick. But after being stranded there on Malta for three months, the season changes. It's a lot safer to travel by ship, and so they... They get on a ship that was harboring there on Malta and um, that had wintered there, and now they're headed for Rome. But this ship doesn't go directly to Rome. Instead, they port about 100 miles south in a city called uh, Puteoli. And uh, you got to wonder, like, why they did that. Uh, some some of uh, the scholars that I read say, speculate that because it's the opening of the sailing season, that the harbors are super crowded, and so they can move their goods much more quickly and get them to Rome by like porting south of that and then transporting the rest by land. But that final leg for Paul going to Rome is uh, by land. And it seems like when he gets to Rome that they recognize that these charges against him are really flimsy and that he's not a flight risk. In verse 16, Luke says, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So Paul is allowed to rent a house in the community there, and he's probably chained to a 
Roman soldier um, by the wrist. And this would be like the first version or a first century version of the GPS ankle bracelet, except that it's a big Roman soldier that weighs 220 pounds that you have with you. And it's, it would be typical for the guard to change every four hours to be there with Paul. So what do you think Paul is doing as these soldiers rotate in with him? It's there and under those circumstances that Paul teaches in the synagogue, probably drags that soldier along with him, and he holds classes for the Jewish leaders there, and he's explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of their religion. And in verse 23, uh, Luke says, he witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. And then we get the result, you know, uh, some were convinced by what he said, and others would not believe. So the Apostle Paul is sharing a rental with a Roman soldier's constant presence for another two years. Evidently, Rome has backup, back, backups in their court system as well. During which, Luke says, Paul, verse 30, welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is around 60 to 62 AD, and during these two years of arrest, Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and that's why they're called the prison letters, if you read a commentary about those books in your New Testament. Now, Acts doesn't tell us what happens to Paul. Uh, does he stand before the emperor? We don't know. And if he did, was he found guilty or innocent? What happened to him after these two years of arrest? A lot of scholars say that he wasn't killed until later. And it's possible that he was released from this sentence, and uh, then he went out and took another journey, a fourth journey, maybe a fifth journey, and shared the gospel to even further regions of the world, and perhaps after he left, for some time he was recaptured or brought back. Um, it's fun to speculate, but we don't know for sure, and we probably never will. But we know that he was martyred for his faith in about three years or so after this moment. So that's the story. That's, that's where Acts ends. So as we do typically here, uh, for those of you that are new, we like to teach through the Scripture and then stop and say, okay, what does that mean for you and me? What, is it, what does it matter that the Apostle Paul went through all of these trials in order to get to a trial that really was trumped up? Let me start by asking you a question. Does being a devoted Christian mean everything will go nice and easy for you? What do you think? Are Christians guaranteed a life where all the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the children above average? <laughs> are Christians guaranteed smooth sailing, pun intended, according to what we've seen in Acts throughout the entire story of the first century church? What would you say? I don't know about you, but when I look at it, it seems to me that uh, being a Jesus follower meant 
a life of misfortune, difficulty, danger, and death for some. That's the first century. Now, I know that this is a different world and a different time, but let me ask you the same question in a different way. I know that if you've been a Christian for a while, you've experienced some wonderful things, wonderful benefits in being a Christian. You've had really joyful moments. You've had amazing fellowship. And you've seen God show up. But is everything in your life nice and cozy? 100% of the time, you have no worries. You have perfect health. Your kids are perfect. Your marriage is bliss every moment. And you're seeing the world just become more and more a Christian utopia. Is that what we're seeing? You know, if you just think about the Apostle Paul in two chapters, the adversity that he faced, he's in jail. He's in jail unjustly. He's had, he has all the stress and anxiety of his future. He's subject to storms at sea. His life is threatened. He ends up shipwrecked. In Rome, he's chained to a soldier under house arrest, so he can't do what he thinks he's called to do, what he, what he really wants to do. It seems like there's a barrier that is keeping him from doing that. You know, we've said, as we've read through Acts, it is the history of the church, but we've also said that it's our story as well. And wouldn't you agree with me that um, as Christian people, those of you here that are Christians, would you, would you agree with me that we are not immune from adversity? Anybody want to vote on that? This is the main thought, I think, that comes out of this passage for us today, is that every ad adversity you face is an opportunity. Every adversity you face is an opportunity. You know, when, you, when we read these stories about Christians in the first century, Aren't they remarkable, but aren't they real, too? The adversity that they face, of course, it affects them. But they have something someone without faith does not have. It is a perspective. It is a view of life that enables them to thrive and so that they can see difficulty as opportunity. An opportunity for what? An opportunity, number one, to trust God. In the Gospels, there's a similar story about being at sea and a storm arising. Jesus is in, his, in, in a boat with his disciples, and this storm comes up, and they cry out in fear, and Jesus calms the storm. You know, that is not how it works for Paul here. There's no calming of the waves. Instead, there's only trust during the storm. Paul said, Acts 27, 25, I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. In the middle of that storm, Paul is saying, I'm standing on what God told me. With the disciples and Jesus, when the storm came, Jesus said, waves be calm. With Paul, in the middle of the storm, God said, buckle up and trust me. Both require trust. But don't you feel like Paul's situation requires greater trust? We'd all rather the sea be calmed, wouldn't we? 
But God doesn't always calm the waves. Instead, calms our hearts when we place our trust in him. And Luke is emphasizing that in spite of all the odds, God promised Paul that he would make it to Rome. And Paul trusted that word from God. Now, Paul's an amazing individual, right? He is. And is Luke making that apparent? I think that he is. But I want you to see that it's not Paul that's strong here. It's God. This isn't about how tough Paul is, how good he is under pressure, how calm he is in chaos. That's all good stuff. It's great to be that kind of person. But his trust is in God. And we get a little insight into how Paul trusted when once in the middle of a a thing that was afflicting him, he prays that God would remove this issue over and over and over And then in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, he says in verse 9, But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Have you had to take God at his word lately? What have the last two weeks been like for you? What about the last two months? What about the last two years? Have you had any moments in your life where you just had to trust God. You couldn't see the outcome. But you were standing on what God has said to you in his word. It could be in your marriage, in your business, your career, your kids. The truth is, sometimes, there are moments in our lives where all we have is trust in God. We don't know the outcome. And sometimes the outcome that comes to us is the worst we could ever imagine. And it's in that moment that God's reliability becomes a reality. That's when his power will be perfect, mature, and fully grown in you and me. And that is when Christ's power will rest upon you. Now, someone who has this kind of trust, this kind of confidence in God, will have another opportunity in adversity, and that's to be an agent of hope. To be an agent of hope. Just before the ship is about to break apart in Paul's journey, Paul is talking to his shipmates, most of whom are not believers, and he says, 2733, for the last 14 days you've been in constant suspense and you've gone without food and you haven't eaten anything. And now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all and he broke it and they began to eat. Paul is not in church. He is not preaching a sermon here. He is living life in the middle of incredible stress 
and threat and challenge. And he's just talking about what he knows about God to the people that are in the soup with him. He's talking about the God that he has trusted over and over and over again. Paul sees this as an opportunity, not just to trust God, but to be an agent of hope. And look what happened in verse 36. They were all encouraged, and they ate some food. You know, Paul had other options in this moment, right? Think about what has led him to this situation. Paul could have said, you know, this is all your fault. I told you guys at the beginning that we shouldn't go on this trip. And by the way, all of you are responsible for my condition. You have been part of unfairly treating me. The Roman system is against me. The soldiers have been against me. This crew is against me. And the truth is, you're a bunch of heathens who are going to get what's coming to them. So turn or burn, baby. Once they made it to Rome, after all he's been through, Paul is, remember, Paul's under house arrest, under false pretense. He's having to wait and wait and wait for the prison system, and there's no guarantee he's going to get any outcome that he prefers, and the odds are truly stacked against him. And so if you're Paul, what are you thinking? What do you like in that moment? What's your disposition to those around you? And Luke says in verse 30, he welcomed all who came to see him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Really? And, you know, like in the middle of this, he is welcoming others who might be in similar situations or not. He's bold about what he knows about God. And Luke says he doesn't see any hindrance. And I see 10 different obstacles in the way. Isn't Paul actually doing what he thought he would do in Rome? Only he's doing it under far different circumstances than he imagined. And the reason he could do that is because his view of his circumstances is through his trust in what God said. Now listen to me. I'm not trivializing the adversity that you're facing here today. I can look out and I see faces and I know some of your stories. Many I do not know. I know that some of you are facing incredible odds, whether it's a medical prognosis or, you know, your marriage or your family, or your kids are in dire straits or you're worried about your career and what's going to be next. And it's like there's all this stuff that is just weighing on you. So I'm not trivializing this at all. But I want to remind you that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you stand on something that is a rock. It is a firm foundation. And so as a Christian, we have a different way of viewing the world, a different perspective. There's a number of years ago, uh, we had a guy here that spoke, uh, Vince Dacchioli. Anybody remember Vince Dacchioli? He's such a character. He was so funny. And one of the things he said just totally stuck with me. He said that when we look at the world and, and what in God's will in our lives, in the Scripture, we, we kind of say, we either do it this way. We either say, everything that's going on in the world is right here in front of my face, and then God is in the background, 
or we reverse that. And God is here close to me. And everything I see going in the world, I view through what God has told me. It's a very different perspective. And I want to say to you, those of you that are listening online or um, you're here in our building, if you're not a Christian and you say like, well, what is the difference? I could, I could tell you all kinds of theology. I could go into the doctrine of salvation right now, but I want to tell you one of the bottom line differences in being a Christian, a person of faith, is that you have the confidence in whatever is happening in your life that God is with you, that his hand is on you right now. And he has not forgotten about you. And what's happening to you has not been overlooked by him. He doesn't promise a life without adversity. The world is broken. But what he does promise us is that he is our heavenly father. And we can place our confidence in who he is, even if I can't see it in the moment. And I think that that's why the gospel was so powerful in the first century, because you had all these people who were new Jesus followers, and they're scattered from their homes. They're persecuted. They're suffering. But they had a confidence in God, which is really remarkable. The hope of a Christian is that our lives matter and that God is involved in every part of our lives, not just our religious lives. He's involved in your marriage. He's involved in the way you work. He's involved in the challenges you're facing as a parent. God is there with us. And that should bring us hope. You won't have hope if you don't have trust. Trust comes before hope because that is the source of hope. It's not just, well, you know, I'm going to be Pollyanna. It's like we have something that we can stand upon, God's word. Can I give you something to think about besides why adult, young adult males are bitten by snakes? <laughs> if you're in a situation or the next time you're in a situation that seems hopeless, or you're anxious, people around you are saying the world is going to uh, hell in a handbasket, or you're just thinking the position you're in right now just really stinks. Ask yourself, am I being led by my trust in God right now? Because if you do, it will reveal to you where your true confidence can be. And if your confidence is in God you will most naturally become an agent of hope in all the chaos around you. When we face adversity, when we have struggles, like it's not, we're not supposed to hide it and pretend like it's not there, pretend like we're not anxious and we're strong. We're not strong. But our God is. The last thing I want to point out about as we wrap this book up is I want you to see how different Acts ends from the Gospel of Luke. Do you remember we, before, if you weren't with us, we went all through the Gospel of Luke up until Easter, and then we started this story. And in the Gospel that Luke wrote, the end was clear. Jesus was crucified, he resurrected, and then he handed off his mission to his disciples. 
But Acts, it just ends abruptly. It's like the loop isn't closed. And I wonder if that isn't because the story of God's people is continuing. That wasn't a, a time to wrap the bow around the whole story. In Acts 28, that's the church. The story of the church has continued, and maybe Luke's kind of obscure ending is deliberate. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and this is kind of the last thing I want to say to you, is that you are living Acts 29. You and me, we're living Acts 29. There were 28 chapters in Acts, but chapter 29 is a really long one. Remember, sure you remember, um, when we went through Luke, I called that season one. And then when we came into Acts, I said, that's season two. Jesus, his people. We're season three. And there's a lot of episodes in it, granted, but the story has continued. You know, the Apostle Paul, or even all the believers in Acts, they, they stood on this verse, Acts 1.8, that said that they were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you know what happened? Something far beyond their imagination. It was Jerusalem, and it was Judea, Samaria, and it was their part of the world, but you know, they never, ever dreamed that the gospel would arrive in Temecula, California, or Marietta, in 2022. Here we are. And we are continuing the story of Christians in the world today. We are, just imagine if they were writing Acts 1 million and 29. What would they write about us? Would, would the story be that there was a group of people that stood on what God told them, that placed their confidence in God as shaky as their world was around them, and as the whole world stressed out and got anxious and, and like, just like got scared, that they didn't join in, that they were agents of hope. And they pointed to the one that would give people confidence. I hope that that's our story, Sunridge, because we are living it. We are living Acts 29, and we have a God who resurrected his son and has given us hope through the resurrection. If that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet, folks. So let's be that today. Let's be the Acts 29 story in our world today. Would you stand and let's worship together. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.